Hello and welcome to Scanner Day's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. This is our latest Last Week in AI episode, in which you can get a quick digest of last week's AI news, as well as a bit of discussion between two AI researchers as to what we think about this news. To start things off, we'll hand it off to Daniel Bashir to summarize what happened in AI last week. We'll be back in just a few minutes to dive deeper into these stories and give our takes. Hello, this is Daniel Bashir here with a weekly news summary. This week, we'll look at green neural net training, Lyft self-driving unit, fake satellite imagery, and a smart knee brace. It's been found in recent years that modern deep learning models have an immense carbon footprint. As covered by Synced Review, a research team from Google and UC Berkeley examined the energy use and carbon footprint of popular large-scale models. In their publication, Carbon Emissions and Large Neural Network Training, the team introduces reduction strategies and endorses previous appeals for publication norms to make energy use and emissions more transparent. Among opportunities for energy efficiency include using deep neural networks of a reduced size that consume less energy without sacrificing accuracy. The team also found that prudent processor, hardware, and data center choices can help reduce the carbon footprint of full deep neural networks by up to 100 to 1,000 times. Next up, not long after Uber's self-driving unit was absorbed into Aurora, Lyft has sold its own self-driving group Level 5 to Toyota's Woven Planet Holdings subsidiary. As TechCrunch reports, Lyft will receive $550 million in cash, with $200 million paid up front as part of the acquisition agreement. The Lyft Level 5 team will continue to operate out of its Palo Alto office. The sale ends Lyft's four-year effort to develop its own self-driving system and removes a costly annual expense from its budget as it pursues profitability. Lyft says the Woven Planet Agreement is not exclusive and it will continue working with others such as Motional, a partner with whom Lyft launched an experiment to offer rides in autonomous vehicles on the Lyft network. When we think of deepfakes, we imagine AI-generated misinformation appearing on social media, Twitter bots, and the like. But as The Verge reports, some researchers are worried about deepfake geography, AI-generated images of cityscapes and countryside. AI-generated satellite imagery could be used to create hoaxes about wildfires or floods, or discredit stories based on real satellite imagery. This fits in with broader concerns about how the mere existence of deepfakes could throw what we are willing to believe into question. Deepfake geography could also be a national security issue and impact military planning. Bo Zhao, professor at the University of Washington, says lying with maps is a centuries-old phenomenon, but as his experiments found, deepfaked satellite images present a new challenge by virtue of being so realistic. For Zhao, the most important thing is to raise awareness so geographers aren't caught off guard. And finally, many companies out there are working on robotic exoskeletons. While we might not be anywhere close to a functioning Iron Man suit, these technologies do have the ability to impact how people move and work. Rome Robotics is one such company. According to TechCrunch, Rome makes assistive devices out of fabrics instead of metal. While fabric has less strength than metal, it is more suited for everyday use. Rome has recently introduced a smart knee brace, which was registered with the FDA as a class 1 medical device 
and uses AI for an adaptive technology that senses the wearer's movements and adjusts accordingly. The product fits in with Rome's focus on helping the large fraction of the world limited by their mobility with wearable robotics. That's all for this week's news roundup. Stay tuned for a more in-depth discussion of recent events. Thanks, Daniel, and welcome back, listeners. Now that you've had that summary of last week's news, feel free to stick around for a more laid-back discussion about this news by two AI researchers. I am Andrei Krankov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation and reinforcement learning for robotics. And with me is my co-host. And uh, Sharon, you're graduating soon, so one thing you may uh, look back on fondly or not so fondly from your PhD life is conferences, of course. Uh, oh, yes. There are positives and negatives. Positives. Travel. <laughs> Conferences is something I think most people agree on are a very pleasant part of uh, research academia. You know, uh, you go to a big event, you present your research, you interact with your um, you know, fellow researchers, learn about a bunch of stuff, you know, go out for drinks, uh, visit different parts of the world, etc. cetera. Uh, so at least until COVID hit, you know, this was a pretty standard part of life. And uh, we bring it up because the first article or blog post we have here is from a researcher uh, by the name of Julian Pagelius, a professor. And he has written about rethinking large conferences, giving a take on kind of the state of conferences and whether we should maybe revise how they're done. So to set the scene a little bit, um, basically the inspiration for this is that in AI, because it has become so big, there are now kind of gigantic mega conferences. So uh, something like NeurIPS has more than 10,000 attendees. I think uh, CVPR, a computer vision conference is similar. And there's, you know, a whole bunch of really gigantic, you know, thousands of people, conferences, EMNLP, uh, ICRA, IROS, lots of them. And so this uh, blog post is basically about that and questioning whether that's really useful or not. Uh, so to give a quick summary, uh, there's a few criticisms uh, of this sort of state of affairs. One of them is that um, you are uh, not likely to see many um, things that are actually relevant to you. So there's like thousands of talks, you know, gajillions of posters, and the fraction that's relevant to you personally as a researcher is super low because these are so big. And um, yeah, there's other issues pointed out uh, where, for instance, reviewing is uh, notably quite uh, problematic at this point, given the size, you know, you have thousands of submissions and, and fellow researchers need to review them. And it's been shown with research that, you know, a lot of this chance there's really no good. Um, it's kind of broken. And um, on top of that, it kind of discourages kind of weirder papers. You want to be conservative. You want to follow practices so that, you know, your viewer isn't freaked out and doesn't have reasons to um, reject it. And then it, it also points out that, you know, people may think it's good for networking, but at these giant places, actually, if you don't already know people, maybe not. Um, yeah, so that's a quick summary. Um, I, I'm curious, Sharon, do you generally agree? Are any of these criticisms more or uh, less agreeable to you? 
Yeah, so yesterday, and I actually today too, uh, was iClear, ICLR, uh, which is one of the big machine learning conferences. And I, I presented a poster yesterday. I, I would say it's not exactly the same uh, since I, I feel like we having these in-person conferences and having in-person anything is just... It's a different experience, uh, I would say. But that that being said, I mean, this reduces carbon emissions by a ton if we don't fly people around all the time. Um, so I think like it, in some ways it does enable a better experience where people can interact with lots of lots more other people even. Uh, but and more people can attend because, you know, sometimes it's harder to travel. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I do think the experience was very different uh, than than at a conference. And I feel like in terms of my work, it didn't get as much exposure there, which in for my case, I don't really care actually. But I think in cases where actually there's like a little bit less media attention in your group, it, it would matter. Um, and it would be great to talk to some of the luminaries face to face and get to know them and then go out for dinner with them or something like that afterwards, which would happen. All these weird ad hoc not weird, but like fantastic ad hoc things would happen during conferences. And they were amazing. They would be like, you randomly bump into someone and you're like, want to get dinner together. And it's just, and you get dinner with this big group and it's just so fun. And you, you meet so many people. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that that is there with the virtual stuff. For sure. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting point that actually isn't touched on in his blog post, uh, which is, with COVID, everything has gone virtual. Everyone just called in, uh, you know, to <laughs> various uh, Zoom calls and whatnot. And there were socials in, uh, you know, uh, Galver town. And uh, yeah, it's definitely a different experience. And I think we discussed it before, uh, in fact, where we touched on this topic and touched on it uh, lowers the barrier to entry. It reduces carbon emissions, but at the same time. The experience is definitely weaker and it's kind of harder to get as much out of it. And uh, I think that also touches on something that uh, this blog post kind of proposes, which is instead of having uh, just these gigantic conferences, let's have more smaller conferences that are more for each subfield instead of these mega, mega conferences that have like everything. And his point is, you know, we have more of these small conferences and the big conferences may still exist, but they will not have a review process. Instead, they will just accept papers from these smaller conferences, which um, seems like an interesting suggestion for sure. And uh, I think, yeah, this made me wonder this blog post sort of, are we just stuck in this old paradigm of conferences from the eighties or seventies when you didn't really have the internet. And so you needed to meet in person you know, right, with your printed papers and your poster to get across what you're doing. And, um, are we yeah, not taking the opportunity now to really rethink and restructure everything and instead blindly just continuing the same stuff we've been doing for decades. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point, you know, and I think, we were probably bound to split up a little bit at some point anyways, but I guess people are always optimistic. You know, some of these fields would come together, especially with multimodal work um, and that this stuff could bring about more interdisciplinary work. I'm not sure to what extent it does. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, another thing that this one that doesn't touch on, but I think is relevant is that conferences, these big conferences usually also have workshops and, um, 
often, you know, your work gets approved to a conference, but also to a workshop and your workshop is much more specific to your topic, right? It's, it's really quite specific. There's only maybe a hundred, you know, um, yeah, not many people and, and only like dozens of posters, for instance, um, in the, in the most biggest case, you know, there's like deep reinforcement learning in Europe, so which is still way smaller. So personally, I, I do think I enjoy workshops more overall. Um, and I, I do like this idea that he proposes of moving to a different model, kind of rethinking how things work. That we have more flexible places to go. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think right now it's so big that you there are actually only very few locations in the world where that can host such a big conference. Yeah, and, and I also, as you mentioned, personally, I feel it's pretty problematic to require travel, both because of the carbon cost and also because of you know, some students um, may not have funding. It's pretty expensive. Um, so then, you know, it, it uh, privileges elite universities, you know, people with scholarships even more, which is not great for, you know, allowing people from different places, different backgrounds to get into the field. Right, right. Well, speaking of carbon emissions, our next article is titled Google and UC Berkeley Propose Green Strategies for Large Neural Network Training. And this is from Synced Review. So as these models get bigger and bigger and bigger, obviously there is a giant carbon footprint that is coming out of training these models and perhaps fine tuning these models, which means like retraining things or do, doing lots, uh, lot, lots of flops um, uh, uh, over time throughout the training of, of these models and tuning of these models. And so um, Berkeley and Google jointly uh, put together a paper around uh, carbon emissions and large neural network training. Uh, and they introduced different strategies to reduce carbon and endorse also previous appeals um, for certain publication norms that are designed to make uh energy use more efficient and also just transparent about these uh, ML models that we're putting out that are huge. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing is that they were able to find uh, that we can reduce the carbon footprint of uh, a neural network by a hundred or a thousand X simply by just making better decisions around hardware and processors. And of course, maybe there's a cost factor with this as well, but if we can reduce it by those orders of magnitude, maybe we should be thinking a little bit more strategically about what we do. And by reporting them, you know, in publications that would encourage people to think about it more consciously. Um, and I know it would just be kind of like, you know, with the ethics stuff, people are like, oh, broader impacts. How much does that really impact things? Um, I think it does kind of seed this thought and make the researcher feel like, you know, I do have to think about this and I do have to put this together and I do have to prepare this at some point, And hopefully that would start to change things over time. What are your thoughts on this, Andre? Yeah, I think this is pretty cool. Uh, we've seen sort of the start of similar ideas in the last couple of years. There was notably a paper on kind of how to calculate the carbon cost of different models. Uh, but in the past, I think they've mostly emphasized kind of the cost to train a model. Whereas what I really like about this one is it 
focuses, uh, as far as I can tell, more on the actual lifetime usage of it. So as we train more models, uh, for instance, GPT-3, right, that's a deployed model. Um, OpenAI is selling it as a service and has plans to spin it up and keep it running in multiple data centers. And of course, Google and Facebook and so on are, are doing very similar things. They are actually running these models at scale continuously, which is really where the energy and carbon footprint is coming from, not so much kind of development and testing, I would imagine. And yeah, this paper uh, points out, uh, for instance, that for data center infrastructure, uh, it says that cloud data, uh, cloud data centers can be uh, two times more efficient than typical data centers, and machine learning-oriented uh, accelerators inside them can be five times more efficient than off-the-shelf systems. And then when you combine the choice of deep neural net, data center, and uh, processor, they say you can reduce the carbon footprint by up to 100 to 1,000 times. So that's that's pretty pretty impressive, and I, I do believe that given how you know young and, and early into this technology we are in terms of deploying it at scale, this may be a very good point, and maybe something that these big companies haven't tackled yet. And the last thing I really like here is, um, as you said, they also point out that to make calculation of um, kind of uh, estimations of energy cost. Um, they point out that machine learning papers that use large computational resources should make energy computation and carbon emissions explicit when possible, which is usually not the case. And they even say they're working with um, a benchmark, uh, MLPERF, to include energy usage during training and inference as an industry standard benchmark. So, yeah, I think... I'm pretty impressed by how kind of practical and uh, sort of uh, important this seems. And by the way, <laughs> looking at the offer list now, I noticed that this was uh, out of Google. The last offer is Jeff Dean. <laughs> uh, so That's yeah, it's a combination, collaboration between Google and Berkeley. So points away to probably Google actually optimizing their data centers and given their scale, they can really make a push to make this a standard practice. Yeah, it's really good if they can if they can do that. Uh, and, and, you know, it makes it makes sense to think about this as I think a lot of technologies are starting to take on the bigger is better, more is better, compute hungry kind of um, angle. And I mean, blockchain obviously is, uh, blockchain enabled technologies are definitely, uh, <laughs> causing uh, a little bit of this, uh, as well. And it certainly is affecting this. And I, I would be personally curious about, you know, if this is energy efficient, can we also make this cheaper such that when someone is, you know, requesting cloud resources or, or doing something of that sort, they can do so consciously and, and also in a way where they don't have to break the bank, especially as a researcher. Inside. For sure. And uh, since you mentioned it, one of the reasons I am not a fan of Bitcoin is because of its, uh, you know, absurd inefficiency. I think I've seen quotes that say that uh, like 2% of electricity usage in the world is now going toward Bitcoin mining, which is solving nonsensical hard math equations to uh, power 
what is right now a speculative asset. But anyway, I guess we don't <laughs> you, need mean, to get it. you mean the currency of Mars? No, a joke. <laughs> the currency of a future. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's problematic. I heard it was, I, I thought it was like 0.6%, but regardless, if it is anywhere near that, it's pretty, um, I don't know. It, it's just a little bit like, okay, well, if this is actually accelerating climate change, that is very sad. Like that is just, we are destroying ourselves in a really sad way. Um, yeah, actually I, I noticed in this paper, it says if Bitcoin were a country, it has a whole comparison to Bitcoin. It would be in the top 30 in terms of CO2 emissions, larger than Argentina, whose population is 45 uh, million. The estimated annual carbon footprint of Bitcoin mining this year is equivalent to roughly 200,000 to 300,000 whole passenger jet San Francisco to New York round trips. So not AI, but you know, there's a fun fact for you there. Um, but last, last thought actually, that now that you're on this point, I think uh, AI is a bit similar to Bitcoin, mainly in the sense that unlike data centers in general, as far as I understand, like most data centers don't do very computationally intensive work, right? They, you know, give you web pages, right. they do logic, but with AI, these giant models, there's a lot of compute. And as we keep going and so much software is going to be powered by AI, and I mean, no doubt we have, you know, a lot of industries, uh, Thomas Driving, where we're going to have even more of these sort of big models in the cloud. Um, definitely this, this would be important, I think, to avoid uh, inefficiency and, and the possibility of, you know, even more inefficiencies similar to Bitcoin. Right. Absolutely. Well, speaking of large models uh, that perhaps emit a lot of carbon, our next article from VentureBeat is titled Huawei trained the Chinese language equivalent of GPT-3. Chinese GPT-3 is here. Um, I, I think this is, uh, you know, uh, another yet another one, a huge number of authors and a huge number of parameters. Uh, so about the same number of parameters, actually more. So around 200 billion as opposed to GPT-3's 175 billion parameters. Uh, and it is trained on double the amount of text, so 1.1 terabytes of Chinese text versus 570 gigabytes of uh, text for GPT-3. And, okay, this model is huge. Uh, it can achieve big things and probably very similar to GPT-3 in terms of uh, qualitatively how it does and helps. And a lot of this data is coming from uh, public data sets uh, just crawled over the Internet as well. So a very similar thing. And it's just being developed um, across across the ocean. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Andre? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely cool. I think too often we get stuck in sort of the American sphere and don't really keep track of what's being done, um, you know, in different parts of the world. Uh, but we have seen China, you know, obviously become huge in terms of AI research. I think uh, the kind of ratio of American versus Chinese papers at major conferences have been changing. And, uh, you know, China has its own Googles and Facebooks in terms of uh, AI labs. So it was not too unexpected, but at the same time, um, still 
pretty impressive, right? Because GPT-3 was kind of a big milestone and here they did that, but uh, a bit more in terms of more parameters, more data, more compute. You know, there's all sorts of absurd numbers in terms of uh, 1.1 terabytes of Chinese text, uh, 2,048 uh, Ascend 9, 10 AI processors. I don't know what that is, but you know, sounds impressive. I think it has like 30 to 40 gigabytes of memory, so it's top of the line hardware. Um, and yeah, I think this points to, I guess, the trend of larger and larger models still holding, <laughs> which uh, maybe is a bit surprising because like how long can this keep going? Right. But uh, so far, it seems like we'll, uh, you know, get to trillions. I mean, we have already gotten to trillions, but soon enough, <laughs> we'll be seeing more and more of these like 500 billion, 1 trillion, whatever parameter models, which will be interesting. It'll be a sight to behold. We will see if there are qualitative differences when we, we get to that stage. Um. Yeah, but I, I am curious to see, you know, even though it is a very similar model, uh, I think it might be used and perceived in very different ways since China does approach AI uh, in a different light. Uh, and it was noted in the article that, you know, they didn't do as much bias analysis as we did for GPT-3 because that's not necessarily as top of mind yet, hopefully. Uh, and so... It's just culturally the way China, I think, perceives AI is a little bit more positive than the way U.S. is seeing uh, AI. And so uh, we'll see how that dictates, you know, use cases and and, and what, what those implications are. For sure. Yeah, notably in the paper, they did, um, you know, kind of the same, a lot of the same evaluation types that GPT-3 did in terms of, you know, a, a broad range of tasks and uh, few shot and zero shot performance. And similarly, they showed that this is a really adaptable model that can be applied to lots of things. And now with OpenAI trying to commercialize GPT-3 and, you know, actually make people pay <laughs> for this huge model that can do lots of things, uh, it will be interesting to see if something similar happens here. And, um, you know, if, if these models like GPT-3 and, and this one now will turn out to be kind of a game changer or not. But moving on to uh, not talking about gigantic neural net models, something a little more, um, you know, smaller and more local, but that does have a lot of potential. Uh, our article here based on a press release is farming robot kills 100,000 weeds per hour with lasers. So this is a pretty short uh, kind of uh, press release type article that talks about how this company, Carbon Robotics, has unveiled its third generation uh, autonomous weeder, which is a smart farming robot that identifies weeds and then destroys them with high power lasers. And this is important because um, this kind of technology uh, it doesn't destroy or doesn't harm soil and water. And uh, it, uh, you know, obviously makes it so you don't need to use pesticides on weeds, which has its own implications, and also makes it so you don't need to pay manual laborers. Instead, you can use this kind of technology. Uh, and at a high level, you know, it, it uh, drives down rows of crops. It has 12 cameras uh, 
scanning around. And then there's an onboard computer that has deep learning, computer vision algorithms. And then it can use carbon dioxide lasers to zap and kill the plants. And uh, this is interesting partially because this is part of a trend. So another article just a week ago from The Guardian is titled Killer Farm Robot Dispatches Weeds with Electric Bolts, which describes a kind of similar development from a different company. And, and really, there's hundreds of companies that are working on this sort of thing. It's, it's one of the big challenges and opportunities of robotics. And uh, AI developments have definitely made that more feasible, uh, but it's definitely ongoing. Yeah, so Sharon, uh, what do you think? Well, we've seen a bit of this before from, let's say, uh, Blue River Robotics. Uh, and it makes sense that this is uh, being continued to roll out. And I think it's interesting that there's also the take of, you know, we want to reduce pesticides because that is kind of the that is the trend uh, towards which we realize, you know, pesticides are not are not good for the environment if we're going to speak about, you know, climate related things. And so I think it's really important that these technologies are being brought to bear there. And I think it's also really funny that um, this is called the killer robot in the article, but it's a good killer robot in the sense that the thing it's killing is weeds. So it is a killer robot, but it's killing weeds. So hopefully that's that makes that makes a it much more okay, more wholesome I guess. view uh, on killer robots. Funny. You know, this is Terminator for farms, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not terminating any people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this is cool. Uh, I think. So. Yeah, as you said, uh, Blue River actually. I think they got started around 2012, 2011. When I was graduating undergrad in uh, mm -hmm. 2015, that's one of the companies I thought about applying to, and they were kind of growing at that point, and have since been acquired by John Deere. So it it seems pretty safe to assume that these kinds of technologies will kind of keep being developed and mature and uh, become commonplace uh, over the next decade. And given the shortage of manual labor uh, that exists, at least in the U.S., um, for you know stuff like this, but also for many other tasks in agriculture, like uh, fruit harvesting or, or other things, uh, this is definitely a pretty useful um, field, this uh, agrobots area. And I think something that doesn't get mentioned a lot, I don't think many people are aware of this with respect to AI. You know, everyone knows about computer vision, whatever, uh, maybe like humanoid robots, but this sort of thing maybe goes under radar. And I do think it's it's worth kind of appreciating. Oh, absolutely. Because it's actually, it's impacting a, a real area um, and and the way we're, we're doing things in that, in that sure. area. So I think it's very exciting. Well, we're just on an emission streak, <laughs> climate streak today. Everything is slightly related because the next thing is around self-driving cars. Uh, so our uh, last article is uh, from TechCrunch titled Lyft sells self-driving car unit to Toyota's woven planet for $550 million. And so this is uh, big news that Lyft uh, has sold off its uh, AV unit, so the, the side that was doing autonomous cars, and sold it to Toyota for $550 million, meaning that Lyft is kind of suggesting that they're pulling out of this race, or at least partnering with Toyota and focusing on their main product of being that go-to ride-hailing network. Uh, and 
and Toyota is kind of doubling down on uh, autonomous vehicles. Andre, do you want to say some words about this? Any surprises? Probably not hugely surprising. Maybe it is. A little bit. Um, I, I personally didn't realize that the steam was so big. Uh, this one points out that, uh, you know, they had 400 people in the U.S., Munich and London, um, which is pretty big, you know, and, and the sale is 550 million. So obviously this was pretty substantial. My impression was that uh, Lyft strategy was more to partner with other companies like Waymo instead of, um, you know, developing its own tech, more like Uber. And it does say here that Lyft will dedicate its resources to what uh, it was really aiming for, which was to become the go-to ride-hailing network and fleet management platform used by any and all commercial robo-taxi services. And it already has partnerships with uh, autonomous vehicle developers, for instance, um, Hyundai Optiv uh, and Waymo. And they want to keep expanding. And, you know, I always thought that made a lot more sense than Uber's approach, right? Like, autonomous uh, driving is hard. Uh, Google has been at it for more than 10 years. Um, and we, uh, we've we talked about it. I think it, it was sad, um, but uh, also a little bit um, expected how it went to Uber. Like, their whole thing just completely fell apart. And it was a giant loss. So this seems like a smart, a smart step. And uh, as you said, maybe not too surprising, but um, maybe also uh, kind of uh, part of a trend in that a lot, there is some um, consolidation. So Zooks, one of the companies has been sold off to Amazon. I do wonder, you know, how many of these startups and, and how many of these companies that have popped up in the past decade are still around. Uh, or if it's just sort of a smaller number of really big companies still working on this? I think it'll consolidate over time because I think the, the space is really saturated. It is crowded as hell. So I can imagine it getting uh, getting much smaller as people realize, you know, I, I still want to stay in the game. We're like, you know, this doesn't really make sense for my business model. Exactly. And it seems like more and more it's it's really only gigantic companies uh, like, for instance, Cruise was a startup got acquired or something like acquired by GM. Obviously, Waymo is part of Google. Uh, Zooks is part of Amazon. So given the nature of this problem, so capital intensive, so research intensive, so difficult, it does seem like inevitable. And maybe all of these startups will just be acquired by the big players to have their uh, talent. <laughs> that is quite possible. And I would not blame the big players for doing that. They're probably like, yeah, we'll just wait to see which ones uh, make sense for us to acquire. Yeah. And uh, with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Sky Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and don't forget to leave us a rating and Be review sure to if you like the show. Be sure to tune in next week. Be sure to tune in next week.